Well, good morning. Um, let me invite you to turn with me and your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll be reading the first 15, 16 verses there in Ephesians 4. Uh, little theologians, I'd suggest this morning that you might draw a, a long path or a trail, a course, a road. And that path that you're walking on should take you over hills and through valleys and up mountains and across meadows and through streams and draw yourself on that long path with other people, all kinds of people, young people, older people, short people, tall people, people from other countries, black, brown, white people. So a long path through ups and downs alongside all kinds of people. And hopefully as we talk about this passage today, some of that might be helpful to your understanding. Ephesians chapter 4, uh, we come uh, uh, to this passage. This is a a transitional point where Paul does what he often does in his letters, and that is he goes from a doctrinal basis of all that he wants to say, all that he uh, says that uh, God has done for us in Christ and would do for us in Christ, to the practical application of what this should look like in the Christian life. It's always important in seeking to understand the lives that we're called to lead to have this same kind of, of structural understanding that we simply can't launch, as it were, into practical Christian living without understanding, without appropriating what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And yet, on the other hand, we can't simply rest and, as it were, retreat into uh, an appreciation, a, a mere uh, intellectual assent and acknowledgement of what God has done. It has to have practical bearing in our lives. It must bear fruit. So God wants, as He was incarnate in His Son, to be incarnate, to be enfleshed in this world today, in the body of Christ, in its members, which are you and me. So let's read here in Ephesians as Paul begins this uh, very practical section of his letter. So hear the Word of God beginning in verse 1, Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit 
just as you were called to one hope, and that one hope belongs, I'm sorry, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, and to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we no longer may be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May the Lord help us. <laughs> May the Lord help us to understand and to apply this portion of his word. We live in a, a society that uses high technology and spends an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary kind um, uh, amount of talent and money telling us in sometimes subtle and in sometimes not so subtle ways, what the good life looks like. What kind of lifestyle, what kind of life pursuit that is worthwhile. It never would be stated to us explicitly that way, and yet it comes to us uh, uh, through the uh, religion of advertising and all of its mediums where it is portrayed to us the worthy life. We see those robust, attractive people looking so vibrant and alive and as it were running through lush meadows using whatever product is being advanced or promoted or, or sold. And we're intelligent enough, I think, to know that purchasing those products won't suddenly make us look like those actors and models in the advertisements. And yet we tend to find ourselves when we're shopping or in stores or, or looking, 
We see that brand of lotion. Oh, that's it, isn't it? That's that brand of lotion everyone's talking about, or that's that whatever, new breakfast cereal. That's that new technological device. And even though we know better, we can hardly resist squeezing the Charmin. That's a, that's a dated, dated pun. But we simply have all these images, these slogans, these pitches that tell us what it is, what is that life that is worth living, what is that good to walk? What is that satisfying, worthwhile, significant existence? And yet Paul is writing here from prison, a place of incarceration. Remember Paul when he says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord, wasn't just saying it figuratively, only as a play on words. He wasn't just saying, well, the Romans think I'm their prisoner, but really I'm a prisoner, I'm captive to the Lord. He was saying he was a prisoner because he was a prisoner. He was jailed. And yet Paul is writing to us under the inspiration of God's Spirit saying, I can tell you what really matters. I can tell you what makes life significant and what really makes life worth living, what really makes life satisfying and God-blessed. And yes, as the Lord's prisoner, I urge you to walk in this manner, to walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling, to walk well in the calling in which you have been called. Now, walk here is not just in the literal sense here in verse 1 of going along, of moving about on foot at a moderate pace. Walk here and often in the Bible is metaphorically used in the sense of of following a particular pursuit, to follow a course, to conduct oneself in a certain way. Examples of that are all throughout the New Testament in particular, walk in newness of life, walk in good works. Paul has already said this in the previous chapter. God has prepared for us good works that we should walk in them. Walk in wisdom, walk in the truth. 3 John 4, walk not according to the sinful nature, but walk by the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us in Romans 8. It's reputed that Mark Twain said, golf is a good walk spoiled. A good walk spoiled. As an enthusiastic yet marginally skilled golfer, uh, I don't really agree with that assessment. But here Paul is saying, in light of all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ, walk well, engage in the good walk that is right and true and nurturing and blessed of Almighty God, never spoiled, never disappointing, never ruinous. So what is... So what does Paul say here in our text? 
What does he say is the very basis? What provides a basis for this good walk, this worthy life? Well, Paul gives us an entirely different basis for this worthy life, this good walk, than that which is supplied by our culture. If I had time to go back, uh, uh, I think I might be able to uh, uh, build a case uh, that this book, the book of Ephesians, is really essentially a book about vocation, about one's calling. That's why I believe Paul, way back in the beginning of this book, particularly in that great doxological statement in verses 3 through 14 in chapter 1. He begins with this whole doctrine of predestination. He wants us each to understand that our vocation, that our calling has its origin, has its basis before human history even began in eternity past. God knew you. God knew me. And he called us in order that we might be made his children. He called us in order that in Paul's language, we might live lives that one day would be holy and blameless in his sight. That's the believer's call. That's his vocation. My vocation is essentially not what I do for a living. It's one corner of my vocation. But my vocation, my calling involves my job, my family, my circle of friends, my worldview, my vision of life. Because my vocation is God's total call to me. To be his child. To show forth his glory. And so you and I, whether at work or out of work, whether our family is where we want it to be or is in shambles, whether in sickness or in health, you and I can always be pursuing our vocation, which is to be God's people, his new society in the midst of this world. And that is the basis of a worthy life. That's what it means. Now, if that's true, I'd like to ask three questions of this text and see if we can together find the answers from God's Word. And the first question is, what is the, what is the essence of this worthy life? What really lies at the heart of it? When I think of American Christianity, when I, when I think of my own history with Christ and all the, all the theological battles and schisms and feuds and denominational steerings and stirrings and all the rest, I'm convinced and I'm convicted when I'm reminded again by Paul that the essence of our calling in Christ the essence of this worthy life, this good walk, the essence is unity, is unity. Look at how Paul puts it here in these opening verses. This is inescapable. Therefore, 
I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager. Be eager. Diligently keep, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because verse 4, there's only one body and one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Unity. Paul gives the doctrinal support for this back in chapter 1 as well where he speaks there of God's purpose for human history. Turn back there with me for a minute. Chapter 1, just a page or two. Don't rely on your bulletin all the time. There's a Bible in front of you if you don't have your own. Back in chapter 1, he says, the great aim of God in human history is not a mystery that's hidden away, but it's a mystery that God has revealed to us. What is it? Look back there in in, in verse 9, beginning with verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, and this is it. God's purpose in human history to unite all things in him, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And then he goes on there in verse 11 to speak of our vocation in him. We were predestined. We were chosen. Chosen for what? Chosen to be used of God to bring everything together, not chosen to help spin things apart and to break things up, to be agents of fracturing and uh, disintegration, but chosen to bring things together. And yet how often have we, as Christian people, been the very instruments of faction and conflict, when our families go to pieces, when our relationships at work become broken and fragmented, when we find ourselves over and against those who are closest to us in our lives, and when even within the church of Jesus Christ we find ourselves hypercritical in dividing into camps, pointing, scorning, condemning. At those points, we are defeating, we are warring against, as it were, God's purpose for his church, the very reason for which he created us and placed us in the midst of a broken world in order that through us, He might show what it means to be made whole, to be made one, to come together, to be united. And there's no other society in all the earth, no other society in human history that claims people from every tribe and every tongue and every people group, from every socioeconomic group, like the church of Jesus Christ. 
and a local church that only aims at reaching one sort of person for Christ is a church that I believe is missing God's deepest purposes for his people. The essence of what God is doing in calling us to walk worthily is to live a worthy life in a worthy community in unity. And it's a unity that's really based, as he shows us here, on the nature of God himself. Did you notice that as we read that all three persons of the triune God come into this? If anyone ever says, hey, you know, where's the Trinity in the Scripture? There's no word Trinity in the Scripture. Well, the word is not found in the Bible, but Trinity appears in the, in the woven into the fabric of all Scripture. The Trinity appears, in, for example, in the Great Commission, the conclusion of Matthew's Gospel, where we're told to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then Trinity is here in the verses of our text. Verse 3, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit. So it's the Spirit who unites us into one body. Just as you were called in one hope of our calling, one Lord who is Lord, Jesus that's the great confession of the New Testament church. Jesus is Lord. These people, recipients of Paul's letters, have been uh, pressed and forced annually to go and say, Caesar is Lord. And Christians refused, jeopardizing their own lives. And they would say, no, we will not offer sacrifices to the emperor cult and say, Caesar is Lord. There is only one Lord. Jesus is Lord. So there's one Lord, and He is the essence of the one faith and one baptism. And then verse 6, one God and Father of all. And so this unity that is ours is a unity that is a, is a result and a reflection of a God who is three and yet one. We are monotheists. Well, if the essence of our vocation is unity, second question, how is it to be expressed? How is it to be made known in the world? By a bunch of clones? <laughs> Are we all supposed to look alike? Is there some kind of book or manual uh, for Christians that tells us uh, how to dress and how to look and how to go about our lives and ministries and what we should like and not like, what kind of music we should have and all the rest? No. If the essence of this worthy life is unity, its expression is diversity immediately following this grand statement of unity. Paul speaks of this rich diversity in the church of Jesus Christ. If you've traveled outside the United States and, or even in the United States, 
and you've been in other lands and other cultures and met and worshiped with believers, brothers and sisters in Christ there, you know of this diversity, not only culturally and uh, ethnically, but diversity of worship. I and perhaps many of you have experienced that diversity and, and felt a little uneasy at the context of worship that uh, I've found myself in and in uh, places uh, that worship, uh, should I say, is a little bit more bodacious uh, than I'm accustomed to and familiar with. And by the way, if, if you're around Pastor Steer after he comes back from West Africa uh, in worship, you'll, you'll probably see his foot tapping a little bit more and you'll see him moving a little bit more. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying. But it's very often physical, dancing, hands clapping, hands in the air, swaying and moving around type of worship and ministry. And you know me, <laughs> when I get really excited, I raise my eyebrows. <laughs> but I was in the kind of worship, this kind of worship, and, and with brothers and sisters, blood-bought, blood those that we will spend eternity with, a foretaste of glory. And there's this rich diversity within the body of Christ, diversity of worship, diversity of gifts, diversity of taste, diversity of looks. And Paul says that all of this is being used by God to accomplish his purposes in the earth. Look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What does this mean? Well, I don't mean to shock you, dear Presbyterian brethren, this morning, but literally it means we're all charismatics. The word for grace is charis. The word for a gift of God's grace is charisma, and the plural of that is charismata. And he says, to each of us, not some of us, not to those of us who like to move, but to each of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. In other words, I don't choose which gifts I get. Christ the architect and builder of the church, the sovereign king of his church, Christ apportions to me and to you the gifts that were given. And so there's this rich diversity. I've said this uh, uh, perhaps uh, before to you. I think of one of the, the weaknesses and short-sightedness uh, of the church today, particularly in the West, is that we have tended to cluster gifts of similar sorts in different congregations, which keeps us from really having the kind of rich diversity and microcosm in each congregation. Using the analogy of the human body, you know, over here you have <laughs> 
mouths and tongues, and there's this glad song going up. But over here, there are hands and feet, and over there uh, are, are legs. And, and, you know, Presbyterians, I think, uh, over here are the brains, <laughs> which uh, certainly is not an accurate statement. But it's more a warehouse of body parts than a picture of all the diversity, all the, uh, the diversity within the body of, of Christ together. And so within this unity, there is this rich expression of diversity. You and I need to pray that God will give us a spirit of unity and a welcomeness to a proper and biblical diversity within the body of Christ. To each, grace has been given. Gifts have been given. Why? Why does he give gifts? So that, so that I can feel good about myself, super spiritual, knowing that I've been endowed, that I have gifts, that I've got it together now. No. Gifts are given in order that each might give his or her gifts to others. The only reason that you have been given gifts is to give them away to others. The reason that I've been given gifts is for you. And the reason that you have been given gifts is for me. And I will not come to maturity in Jesus Christ without you ministering to me, exercising those gifts. And you will not come to maturity in Christ without me ministering to you. That's how the body of Christ works. A hand cannot accomplish its purpose cut off from the body. That's how Paul uses the same illustration in 1 Corinthians 12 when he, when he uh, uh, rhetorically asks, can part of the body say to another party, hey, I don't need you. I can get along fine without you. It can only work when it's attached to the rest of the body. And the entire body is working together, functionally, cooperatively, doing what its members were fashioned to do. And then he gives us really the central heart of what has been, I think, a misunderstanding of the church in history, and that is God's purpose in giving certain teaching gifts to certain people within the church. The pastor is not the minister of the church. And the proof text of that statement is found here in verses 11 and 12. And he, that is Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Why? What is the purpose for for gifted pastors, teachers, shepherds. He's saying that the ministry of the church is the task of all the people of the church. All the people of the church are ministers as they exercise those God and Christ-appointed gifts. Pastors and teachers are given to be equippers of the people of God in order that all God's people might take the gifts that God has given them 
and minister to one another and minister, that is, serve the world and build the body up. And so not to guilt trip you, but rather to encourage you, I ask you, are you taking advantage of this tremendous opportunity that God has given you to exercise significance and know what it means to be involved in a life that is truly worth living? Are you discovering and developing and using the gifts of God's grace that He's given to you? Look again, verse 7, to each one. Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Verse 8, when He ascended, He gave gifts. Verse 11, He Himself gave in order that we all might be built up for the work of ministry. That's third question. First question, what is the essence of this good walk? It's unity. What is the expression of this good walk? It's diversity. And finally, what is the end? What is the aim of all of this? Paul says maturity. Look at this, verse 13. Until we attain to the maturity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. What's characteristic of little ones? of kiddos, it's being tossed around by every new thing, every fad, everything that comes down the pike. And the spiritual child is the one who, as it were, channel serves, turning to this or turning to that, turning to this new thought or this new idea or this new book. The unanchored spiritual child says, oh, that's the secret. That's the ticket. That's what I've been missing. Ah, now I've got it. Inflated by someone else's idea with little regard for biblical scrutiny. You and I are supposed to be in the process of growing up of becoming mature in the faith, ministering and being ministered to and being steady, not being tossed all over the place, but weighing, balancing, listening, being Bereans like Luke spoke of in Acts chapter 7 as those who receive the message but examine the Scriptures to see if what Paul or anyone else said was true. If it meets what God's Word says, receive it. If it doesn't, discard it. Don't be tossed about by every new fashionable thing that you hear. But be listening, examining, praying, testing against God's Word, growing into maturity and helping others into maturity. Verse 15 rather speaking the truth in love, 
we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the picture. That's the picture of a life that's worthwhile. And that's the good walk that God stretches out before us. The voice of God calling to us, as it were, from eternity, from before time. He says, come and follow me. I bought you with a price in order that you might live holy and blameless lives. I made you my own in order that you might make one another all that I mean you to be. Now stop fighting and stop wrangling and stop criticizing and stop carping and love one another from the heart in the unity of the Spirit. Speak to one another in love. The truth, yes, but truth in love. Build each other up. Use your rich diversity of gifts and know what it means to live a life that will matter for all eternity. And may God increasingly bring us into this life, this good walk, not spoil. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we see the picture held out to us, and it's a clear one. It needs no fill-in to its colors. And yet there's so much that draws us from it. So much of this life as we know it, so much of even what is good and sweet and uh, so much of your gracious gifts and provisions that lays claim to our hearts and our affections in greater proportion than it ought and would squeeze out that life that is life indeed, that is worthwhile, that life of service and ministry. And so I pray that in this moment you'll take not my poor words, but your profound words and put it before us and even by your spirit, drive them inseparably into our hearts that we may yearn for this unity within diversity leading to maturity. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his kingdom's sake, amen.